A few months ago, I was invited to a 21st birthday party at Isla House. It was lovely to be invited. I knew the person from the choir and Emily worked with him. So we went off to this party together. As that evening went on, I ended up talking to a lot of new young people, 21-year-olds on Isla, who I don't know. Apparently, the more alcohol you've drunk, the more hilarious it is to talk to the minister in the corner (laughs) about religion. But there is one conversation from that night that I won't forget. And it was with a young man who was not drunk at all when we spoke. I'd introduced myself to him and, and we'd got talking. And it wasn't very long into the conversation that he came out with his question. He said to me, How do you know Christianity is true? I mean really true. True enough to base your life on like you have. It was a good question and one I felt that I might be able to answer. So I started. But sadly as I was getting going, he was pulled away by one of his mates. But on this disruption, he looked at me with a parting glance and he said, You know, Minister, I envy you. I wish I could be so certain about something. I envy you. I wish I could be so certain about something. Who knows, maybe one day a Christian somewhere might be able to pick up that conversation with him again and begin to share some of the real evidence for our faith. But even in those brief moments, I learned something important. It's not because the younger generation never think about God that they're not in church. It's because they are almost conditioned to distrust and doubt everything they hear. Due to the way the media is manipulated these days, this modern generation, they don't trust anything at face value, be that a news report or a social media post or an Isla rumour. And in many ways that's very wise, but it's led to an even greater scepticism. We live in an increasingly post-Christian, post-modern, post-most things age where seemingly everything is up for debate and solid convictions are very hard to hang on to. A few years ago, the band, the Manic Street Preachers, released an album entitled This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. And that perfectly sums our world up. This is my truth. Tell me yours. For most people today, the old certainties are not there. We decide our own truths. And that can change from day to day. Indeed, contemporary culture fosters this questioning attitude towards authority figures and any institution or worldview that makes absolute claims. And consequently, when it comes to the big life questions, our young people are thrown into an ocean of distrust. They don't know where to go. 
They don't know who to listen to. And as a result, they either stick their head in the sand or they make up their own ideas. And as that young man expressed to me at that party, they're condemned to a lifetime of doubt. When it comes to the Christian faith, there is one part that the world today seemingly doubts most of all, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In 2017, a poll was carried out at Easter to see what people believed about this religious holiday that we all celebrate. 46% of people in the UK said they did not believe in the resurrection at all. A further 8% said they did not know. And apparently men are 20% less likely to believe than women, a statistic borne out in the makeup of our churches. Why is it that so many people today struggle to believe in the resurrection? Well, of course, there is the obvious answer, that this is something that's never happened in our lived experience. Paramedics may have been able to resuscitate the likes of Christian Eriksen on a football pitch in recent years, but none of us have known someone who was dead for three days and came back to life. But I think the problem's bigger than that. After all, many people today believe in ghosts and zombies and they haven't seen them. Now, I think the problem with the resurrection is the significance of believing that it is true. If you claim that the resurrection of Jesus happened, that it literally, factually, historically took place on our earth, you are making an utterly exclusive claim. You are declaring an absolute truth that our present day society has been conditioned to doubt. If the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then Christianity is immediately set apart from all the other religions and all the other worldviews on earth. If Jesus rose from the dead, you cannot reduce the Christian faith to just another form of spirituality on the New Age bookshelf, alongside the Reiki crystals and the astrology and the yoga, because it's utterly unique in what it promises. Likewise, if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, you cannot just take Jesus to be another good moral guide among the pantheon of other listened-to figures. If Jesus really rose from the dead, he refuses to take a place alongside Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad. If you say Jesus rose again, you are saying that he is Lord and he is God. The only Lord and God. Let's not beat around the bush. To claim the resurrection of Jesus is to make an absolute claim, exclusive of all others. And here is the interesting thing. The Bible is equally honest about this reality. It doesn't try to hide it. In 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find these words. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. 
You are still in your sin. If Jesus was not literally resurrected from the dead, Paul says, our faith is futile. It is useless. It is without benefit. We might as well go back to bed and take the dog out for a walk, just like everybody else on island is doing at this moment. And why is that? Because the Bible tells us that the consequence of sin is death. And if God does not have the power to defeat death, he cannot defeat sin. And if God doesn't have the power to defeat sin, how on earth is he going to give it to us? We are stuck heading for a hole in the ground and something worse beyond. And even the most apathetic onlooker in our world today is forced to recognise that whether the resurrection of Jesus happened or not really matters. It is a claim of absolute truth. And once you've heard that claim, that Jesus really rose from the dead, every single one of us has to make a decision as to whether we believe it. Or not. As I began by saying, the present generation has been conditioned from school age to doubt absolute claims like these. But it's worth saying at this point that the importance of the resurrection is such that even Christians can waver from time to time. I would guess that there is not one of us in this room that hasn't doubted it at some point or another. Because we know that everything, everything hangs or falls by this truth. And that makes us a little bit nervous at times. It's not just immature Christians that have doubts. It's not just the sinful or the backsliding Christians that have doubts. We all have searching questions at times, particularly when we're suffering, particularly when we're going through difficult experiences. And so it's vital then that our churches are safe places where people can explore and people can ask difficult questions without feeling judged. We all need to re-examine the evidence for our faith at times. And I hope that's what we can do together now. In our reading, we met a man with doubts. His name was Thomas. Indeed, to many in the world, he's known as Doubting Thomas. But I'd like to stand up for Thomas a little bit and say that that name is a little unfair. Because Thomas wasn't a dyed-in-the-wool sceptic. He was just a normal human being, like you and I. Thomas was a mixed bag, capable of many different emotions. At one point in the Bible, Thomas was incredibly courageous, utterly dogged in his commitment. In John chapter 11, Jesus had just heard that his dear friend Lazarus had died. So he sets out to Bethany to attend his grave. The only thing was, the last time that Jesus was in that vicinity, he'd been threatened with being stoned to death 
by a crowd. So this was no easy trip. But Thomas proved himself in that moment to be utterly loyal. He said aloud to the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him, Thomas said. And so all the disciples left together, determined to follow Jesus, come what may. Thomas at times was capable of great faith, just like we are at times. At another moment in John's Gospel, we discover Thomas to be a little slower on the uptake. In John 14, Jesus was preparing the disciples for his departure and he he was speaking to them about heaven. But Thomas didn't get it at all. He, He just didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Listen again to these well-known words. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you there, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas was completely bamboozled by this. He didn't get it. And so he blurts out, What? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas didn't understand. But he really wanted to. And Jesus knew that. And Thomas's question gave him the opportunity to say those oh so important words. I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So truly then, if you want to find a man in the Bible who is like us, look at Thomas. He wasn't a bad person. He proved himself to be kind and good. He wasn't a hard-hearted cynic. He was just cautious and logical. Thomas was a man who needed to work things out for himself. He needed evidence. He needed explanation. He needed to make sure he really understood something before he committed to it. But when he did, he would stake his life on it. And this is the Thomas that we meet in John chapter 20. As our reading begins, we're reminded of the really important event that we looked at together last week. The risen Lord Jesus on that first Easter Sunday had appeared to his disciples. And in their great fear and their great delusionment, remember they were hiding behind locked doors, Jesus came in and he spoke words of peace to them. And in their regret and in their shame at deserting Jesus before the cross, Jesus came in and forgave them and gave them a new purpose. He loved them. He's going to send them out to serve him. And in their great weakness, the risen Lord Jesus comes in and he gives to them some of his death-defeating power. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. It really was an incredible event that took place on that evening of the first Easter Sunday. But sadly, Thomas had missed it. All of it. He was the only disciple not there in that locked room. 
Now we don't know where he was, maybe he was afraid of the Jewish leaders, maybe he was hiding on his own away from the group because he thought that would be a little bit safer. Maybe he was just so despondent at the death of his friend, he'd run away somewhere in tears in the shadows. We just don't know where Thomas was. But we get an insight into the the depths of his despair and his emotion when the other disciples start to tell him about what happened while he was away. As they excitedly come up to him and declare, they've seen Jesus and he's alive again. Thomas turns around and says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where those nails were, and and unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is full of doubt. The news sounds too good to be true. His dear friend back again. And I'm sure Thomas was already aware of the significance of the claim that if Jesus had ridden The whole world had changed. So Thomas needs evidence. He he needs to process. He needs to be sure before he stakes his life on a claim as big as this. And of course we know that that evidence was about to be granted. A week later the disciples are all together again and something truly beautiful happens. Jesus appears again in the exact same way he'd done a week before. He arrives through locked doors. He speaks a word of peace. He displays his hands in his side to prove that it's really him. Jesus wants to ensure that Thomas hasn't missed out on a thing. And what speaks so loudly to us here is the gentleness with which Jesus does everything. He doesn't dismiss Thomas or condemn Thomas for his doubts. He wants to help him. And he knows the wrestling that Thomas has been through. And he tailors his approach to Thomas' needs. Here, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Touch my sight. Stop doubting, my friend. And believe. And it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. And it speaks something so important to us today. That the God we worship is big enough and generous enough to handle our doubts. No matter how numerous they are, no matter how long we've been a follower of Jesus and yet we still have questions, Jesus doesn't see our doubts as a denial of him or a betrayal of him, but as something that's very human, something that he can help with. And the Bible promises us that if we sincerely seek for Jesus, in one way or another, he promises, he promises to reveal himself. 
Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you, Jesus said. And Thomas has just discovered the truth of those words. And he's also just discovered the truth of the resurrection. Jesus really has risen from the dead. The grave has been defeated. The new creation has dawned. And as we thought a few moments ago, when you are faced with that claim, you have to make a response. And Thomas knew what he was going to do. And he turned to Jesus and he said, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And in doing so, he became the first recorded person to specifically claim Jesus as my God. That personal dimension of faith. One commentator wrote about these words and said, The most outrageous doubter of the resurrection of Jesus utters the greatest confession of the Lord who rose from the dead. Thomas was not a bad person. He was just a human person, like you and I. He was capable of doubt and faith in equal measure. But when he was reassured by the living Lord Jesus, he was prepared to stake his life on what he had found to be true. And for that, Jesus blessed him. And it's with that final blessing of Jesus that I'd like to finish today. Jesus turned to Thomas and said, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I always find these moments in the Bible absolutely stunning. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus had the presence of mind to know that many, many Thomases would follow. That he knew that the likes of you and I would be sat here in church today, sifting through our doubts and our questions, trying to work out the truth of things. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus thought of us, and he blessed us. What an incredible thought that is. And it tees up my final question. As we live in our doubt-filled age where absolute truths are denied from every angle, nothing seems to be what it says it is. How do we have faith today? How do we overcome our doubts? How do we find the evidence that we need? Now, I'm not going to give you a trite, patronizing answer because a key element of faith is wrestling with God. And we will always be doing that. But I want to finish by pointing you in three directions. First of all, have a look at Scripture. In those last verses that we read, verses 30 and 31, John stated that he compiled this account for a reason. He said he put this story together so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life. In his name. You know the Bible. The word of God. Reveals the risen Jesus to us. 
For 2,000 years, people have been trying to disprove the New Testament, and they've never been able to do it. In fact, as the years have passed, academics and textual critics have become firmer in their belief that the manuscripts we have are reliable. For example, did you know there's more evidence for the life of Jesus than Julius Caesar? We don't doubt he existed, do we? So I encourage you to trust the scriptures, read them widely, read them regularly, read them prayerfully. Because God will reveal himself as you read, if you read with an open heart. Second, have a look at the difference Jesus makes to the lives of believers, both then and now. Doubting Thomas was transformed into a passionate missionary. Tradition tells us that he went on from here and he travelled to India to preach the gospel and there he was martyred in AD 72. And it goes without saying that you don't become a martyr unless you believe 100% in what you're standing for. What possibly could have transformed Thomas from that man full of doubt to the man who would lay down his life other than the fact that he met the risen Lord Jesus? I don't think there's any other explanation. And since those early days when the risen Lord Jesus appeared, the church has exploded across the world. There have been billions of Christians down through the ages. There are two billion in the world today. People who will say they have met the risen Lord Jesus and he has changed their lives. There are at least 20 of us in this room right now. Are we all mad? Or have we experienced a real change? In meeting Jesus. If you are searching for evidence, talk to another believer. Ask them to share their testimony and their story with you. And finally, my last encouragement is to pray. In my experience, God makes himself known in answer to prayer. Did you notice in the story with Thomas, he knew what Thomas was thinking, even before he was in a room with him. When I was a teenager, I had many doubts. I was brought up in a Christian home, but I really did come to doubt whether any of it was true. I was rebelling from my parents. I was rebelling from everything else they told me, so why not rebel from their faith as well? And I prayed, and I asked God, if you're out there, reveal yourself to me. And one night, when I was 15, he did. I'm not going to tell you that story now. Some of you have heard it before, but suffice it to say, I knew that Jesus was risen and alive. I knew I had to respond. And I got down on my knees and I declared, my Lord and my God. And I cried all the way home. It's human to doubt. We all have questions at times. But if we honestly seek the Lord, if we pray with an openness in our hearts, God will make himself known. It may take a while. Thomas had to wake a week. But God will reveal himself. And I hope that's an encouragement to us all. So I close with that blessing of Jesus. Because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.